You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 140. Valentine's Day, a day where we celebrate love in all its many forms. To focus solely on the romantic side of things doesn't fully encompass the significance of love and its role in our day-to-day lives. Still, to go along with the human mythology of romantic love and the art of courtship, complete with candy hearts and flying babies and singing arrows, we took a moment to consider a different version of the same story. After all, much of the brilliant beauty in nature exists because attracting another is a critical component to a species' survival. It's the reason birds sing, flowers bloom, and elk grow magnificent head ornaments. One of my favorite odes to the strange and wonderful world of courtship is found in Dr. Tatiana's Sex Advice to All Creation, the definitive guide to the evolutionary biology of sex. This wise and wonderful book is far from new. It was originally published in 2002, but it is worth a read in honor of this holiday. For those of you not familiar, you're probably wondering who this Dr. Tatiana is. She is described as, quote, the sex advisor to all creatures great and small, racy but tasteful. In this guide, you find tough questions like this one. Dear Dr. Tatiana, I'm a peacock, but I have a lousy tail. It isn't very big, and some of the eye spots are wonky. The whole effect is wall-eyed. When I put my tail up, the hens don't even bother to feign indifference. They don't look at me at all. Is there anything I can do to impress them? Signed, Invisible in Sri Lanka. Her response is long and incredibly interesting, but begins with this. My advice, join a gang. If you can't make it on your own, gangs are often the solution. What sort of gang? Well, they vary depending on the circumstance. You gotta read it. It's so good. There's also this really good question. Dear Dr. Tatiana, my husband and I have been faithfully married for years, and we are shocked by what we read in your column. As black vultures, we engage in none of the revolting practices you advocate so regularly, and we don't think anyone else should either. We suggest you champion fidelity or shut up. Signed, Crusading for Family Values in Louisiana. Which Dr. Tatiana cleverly responds... Remember, revulsion is in the belly of the beholder, and if I may say so, gorging on carrion is considered revolting in some circles. You complain, however, that I do not often urge or even discuss monogamy. I'll be frank. True monogamy is rare, so rare that it is one of the most deviant behaviors in biology. She goes on and really hits this one home. We'll put a link to learn more about this and other fascinating tales from Dr. Tatiana on the show notes page. But I also spoke with Matt Podolsky about his work bringing the California condor back from the brink of extinction, in which he touches on the monogamy question and the challenges of sparking love in less than ideal circumstances. A lot of the folks who listen to this show are probably aware because I periodically talk about my experience um, as a condor field biologist um, that I spent two years uh, working in northern Arizona and southern Utah as a California condor field biologist. 
Um, and then I also spent two years uh, here in Boise, Idaho, um, working with the uh, captive breeding population of California condors. Um, so I got to observe, you know, breeding behavior in these two very different settings, like one in the wild. Um, and, uh, and then I got to observe like how breeding of condors is like managed by humans in this captive setting with this goal of like, you know, reproducing as many new birds that can be released out into the wild flock as possible. Um, and, and, you know, obviously there's like a lot of differences and, you know, humans are controlling that captive situation. What were there struggles with getting them to, uh, uh, breed in captivity? So this was a big question, uh, you know, back in the 80s when folks were talking about, you know, this idea of bringing condors into captivity and starting a captive breeding program. I mean, that this was viewed as sort of the only way that they could save the condor from extinction. Um, but there was a lot of controversy over that. And there were a lot of people that said, like, no, this just isn't going to be possible to breed them in captivity um, and it's not going to work. Um, but you know, now that we have years and years, I mean, decades of experience breeding condors in captivity, um, I think it's pretty safe to say that, um, yes, they do readily breed in a captive setting. And um, I mean, I think so I interviewed um, this guy who is the director of the California Condor Captive Breeding Program at the L.A. Zoo, this guy, Mike Clark. Um, he's been doing this, I mean, he's dedicated his career to this, right? Um, he's been doing this for decades, super fascinating guy. I mean, knows more about condors than almost anybody else I've ever met. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, the, the remark or the quote that he gave, um, that's actually in my documentary scavenger hunt was, you know, um, that it's remarkably easy to breed California condors. You just put a male and a female in, a you know, a fenced off area. And they're and, like, let's do this. <laughs> and they're like, let's do this. Let's get it on. You know? <laughs> it's that simple. <laughs> um, and I mean, it's not to say that it works 100% of the time, right? right? So, I mean, in a captive setting, um, the pairs are selected based on genetics, right? So every pair has their own enclosure um, and the breeding age condors, like they're not allowed to, to you know, socialize and interact with all the other adults. Um, they're put in a pen with just their mate, right? Um, so you have a whole bunch of large, you know, fenced in areas and each individual one has a single male and a single female condor. Um, and then there's, you know, during the time of year when they're raising a chick, um, there's a third, a third condor, which is, you know, the chick that the two of them raise. Um, but you know, the, these, uh, mate selections, I mean, it, it, these decisions about like which male and which female go together to breed um, are made um, by geneticists um, because, you know, California condors, like the numbers drop down. So the entire population is based off the the genetics from 14 individuals. Oh, so they were trying to um, not have inbreeding. Exactly. Exactly. And so they try to make sure there's actually three distinct family lines that they've identified with the genetics. And so they're trying to make sure that like these pairs, each one, the male and female, each come from a different uh, genetic background. Um, and then those genetics are also important when the decision is made about like where the chicks go, like which wild flock they're sent to. Interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the wild, 
California condors. And, you know, and, 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 and this was something that I got asked all the time when I was working as a condor field biologist, because part of my job was to also be, um, I mean, in an, an, an outreach person, like people would approach me, you know, when I was working in an, an area like the South Rim of the Grand Canyon, where there's a lot of tourists, um, I would get approached, you know, all the time um, with questions about California condors. And it was a very, very common question for people to ask about, um, you know, various aspects of, you know, the the breeding behavior and the breeding biology of, of condors. Um, and, you know, what actually like the most common question was, is, is everybody's wondering if, um, if they're monogamous and, um, and I don't know why, like, it's just every, that's like the burning question related to breeding biology that everybody has, you know, and, um, and, you know, my response would be like, well, it's kind of complicated, right? Like are humans monogamous, you know? And, and I, and I would start to like throw that back at people, you know, and I start to get people thinking like, well, sometimes. And I'd be like, that's your answer for condors. It's the same as it is for humans. Like, sometimes they are. Um, but, you know, what happens with condors, so, you know, California condors, they they don't, um, they sort, you know, they start to kind of go through puberty, like their sub-adult stage um, at around like five or six years of age. Um, and there's ab- there's definitely like a learning curve as far as like uh, their ability to successfully raise a chick. But of course, the first step is just like the courtship, right? Um, and so, I mean, the the earliest example, I mean, I guess um, not the earliest example, the youngest condor that has ever, you know, been documented as su- having a successful breeding attempt raising a chick um, is five years old. What are they looking for in one another in terms of their pair makeup? You know, a, a lot of changes occur as condors reach um, this this age of breeding maturity, right? And so, what happens is their head starts to change color. So, juvenile condors have a black head; adults have a bright red, pink, orange head. Um, so, it's a really dramatic like shift in color, and they go through this transit transition, right, where there's like splotches of pink and then dark, and I mean, and it's and it's different for every individual, and it happens earlier you know like for some condors it starts to happen at a younger age than for others and so there's a fair amount of variation there's also plumage differences changes in the plumage that occur and then there's the behavior right um and it just it seems like you know some birds for whatever reason like they're five they reach five or six years of age and they're just not ready yet they're just not into it like you know a male you know like a, a, a potential mate will come approach them and they're just like whatever i'm not interested you know whereas other ones will be like as soon as they're 5 years old they're like i'm into this i'm ready to do it like doing my breeding display um and i'm actively pursuing finding a mate right um and so there's 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 a lot of variation there and i mean like who knows what you know why some individuals are ready at age 5 and why other individuals aren't ready until they're like 8 or 9 years old and Males will display to a whole bunch of different females. Um, and so there's there's a lot of that that happens like with, you know, these subadult birds and these birds that have like just reached breeding age where they're, you know, there's all kinds of like, you know, breeding interaction and displays going on. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those two animals are actually going to form a pair bond and select a nesting cave and lay an egg together. Right. Um, or have success relations. Hmm. And do they 
do they have like lex or anything like grouse do no, i mean they, do they go and display in they, front of they many don't. i mean th- but there is definitely like a a, a a very distinctive breeding display like something like a sage grouse um i mean it's not quite as dramatic with the big air sacs and the puffing up but condors do have air sacs and so they can like puff up their you know their neck and face and make their head and neck look much bigger condors can also change the color of their head so during breeding season you'll see and it can be like within you know like a minute or two you'll look at a condor and the head will be really like dull pink and then you'll look the next minute and there's you know a a potential mate and they you know and all of a sudden you know, the head gets much brighter and it'll turn like bright orange, you know, um, really. Quickly. Um, so there is a lot of like really interesting behavioral things that happen like during that that breeding season. You know, just if, if, if you see like if you see a male condor displaying to a female condor, like that certainly doesn't mean that like they're going to form a pair bond or they're even going to copulate. Right. Um, and even if they even if you actually see a successful copulation, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to form a pair bond and go find a, a nest cave and lay and raise a chick together right um so you definitely see extra pair copulation for sure um and even very well established pairs so california condors like once you know once they do form a pair bond um and they select a nest cave um and they lay an egg and you know that egg hatches they start raising a chick um they will um you know, if, especially if that, if they, especially if they successfully raise a chick, um, then, I mean, that pair bond, it really is solidified and they'll come back two years later and, you know, do another attempt to, to raise another chick. Um, sometimes in the same nest cave, sometimes they'll pick another cave. Um, but so, I mean, in a certain sense, like there absolutely is, you know, these, these, uh, these pair bonds are established. And I think, You know, if you were looking at like we don't have an example of, you know, California condors potentially can live 60 to 70 years. Right. So like if you ask, like, would that pair bond last the lifetime of the animal? Like we have no idea because the old condors that are being, you know, that are that are sort of in observation in um, these wild uh, release populations are like, you know, 16, 17, maybe 20 years old max. So they're still young birds. Um, but most likely, you know, those pair bonds, especially when, you know, those birds are able to successfully raise chicks every two years, most likely those pair bonds will last the lifetime of those individuals. However, you know, early on when things are happening and like, you know, uh, birds that don't have established pair bonds are seeking mates. Um, there's lots of, there's, you know, there's lots of displays. There's lots of copulation um and you know it's it's kind of like a mess you know i mean um just like it is if you're like single and you're out you know for some people i guess like i mean everybody does it differently right i mean uh the whole mate selection process it's it's complicated just like it is for humans and that's that's what i would tell people um but you know in terms of their um display i mean are they dancing are they you know i mean there's just the what what what's what are we seeing like as a female what am i watching sure so the males um they they hold they hold their wings out um kind of like halfway right so they hold their wings out like this and they they stretch them out 
Um, and then they take their head and they kind of droop their head down. They kind of droop their head down. Um, and, and as I said, you know, the, the head coloration changes and becomes super bright, right? Like bright pink or orange. Um, and then they actually, as they droop their head down, they actually do this, uh, uh, this um, movement with their tongue. Um, and it, it makes the sound, which you can only hear if you're really, really close. I actually never heard this sound of all the breeding behavior I observed in the wild. I never heard the sound until I worked with the captive population where you can actually get much closer. Right. But like there's this, it's, it's almost is, you know, the, they move their tongue back and forth and it's like, almost like it's vibrating, you know, that quickly. Um, and it makes this noise. And so they're like drooping their head. They've got their wings out. They're doing this weird tongue thing with their mouth. Um, and then they dance, they, they just sort of like, um, sway back and forth and they, and, and as they're swaying back and forth, they're doing this dance, they're approaching the female and they're getting closer and closer. And as they get, and as they're right up against the female and they're doing their dance, they're swaying, they're doing their weird head thing. And then they start footing at the female and they're footing because they're, they're essentially like seeking permission to mount the female. And when they actually copulate the, the, the male condor climbs onto the back of the female, the copulations last uh, several minutes generally compared to other birds for sure they take their time the other interesting thing is um you see males displaying to males uh and uh i mean we actually observed uh several examples um in the wild in arizona and utah um several examples of um what appeared to be pair bonds between two males um there are examples in California of pair bonds observed between two females. Um, we actually in Arizona had a trio of two males and one female that successfully raised a chick. As these things are happening, right, like the 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 level of detail of the observation that's going on um, is is so much higher than than ever existed, like way back before these reintroductions of condors occurred. So like this is all new information. It's all like behavior that like is this normal? Like. No, you know, but like they're doing it. I mean, there's two males and a female and they're cooperatively rearing this chick and it worked. She, you know, the chick fledged. Um, well, I would imagine if you had a if you had three parents. <laughs> yeah, right. But I mean, you know, like everybody wins in the end. Sure. Right? But, I mean, it was not what the, it was not what this crew of biologists expected you know, mm, um, right. because, you know, I, I, I think you would expect that, you know, maybe like the two males would like fight over, um, control of the chick, um, or would fight over the attention for the chick or the attention for the female. And, um, you know, it, that, that just, it, I mean, it, it happened a little bit, but it never happened to the extent that it, it disrupted the success of the chick. Yeah. Um, so it's complicated, right? I mean, you have like, you know, uh, you have a trio of birds like successfully raising a chick. Um, and then you have, but then you also have these pair bonds like, um, breaking up. Right. And so we've seen numerous examples of, um, I mean, this happens very, very commonly where you, you get an established pair bond between two individuals. And then one of those two individuals dies. Because the problem that that um, the 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 crew down in Arizona and Utah, and I mean this is the case for condors everywhere, California, Arizona, Utah, and 
um, in Baja in Mexico um, is lead poisoning and um, lead poisoning. Like it's, you know, the birds that, I mean, this is lead poisoning is happening repeatedly every single year, repeated um, sublethal exposures um, and lead accumulates in your body. Right. So like the, the birds that are most likely to get a lethal dose of lead are the oldest birds that have these established pair bonds. And so, the most frustrating thing about everything that's going on in, you know, wild condor populations all over the place is that like we're at a point where there are these well-established pair bonds where theoretically these pairs of birds should be super consistent every two years raising a chick in the wild, but they're not because these old birds with well-established pair bonds are most likely to die from lead poisoning because their entire life they've been getting sublethal exposure and it's just been accumulating in their body. Um, and so every year we see these well-established pair bonds break up because one of the two individuals um, either, you know, dies from lead exposure um, or sometimes, ha you know, comes in and is trapped and is tested. The blood lead level of that individual is tested and it's so high that the biologists have to hold it and treat it um, for toxicity. Um, and it's just unfortunate that like that period of time when birds are getting these potentially lethal doses of lead occurs, like it disrupts the breeding season. Because the breeding season is now, right? So condors start, they start doing their displays like, you know, January, right? You start to see this breeding behavior sometimes even, you know, uh, uh, late December. Um, and now is the time when they're starting to lay eggs. And, and um, what are, what's the status of condors currently? Yeah, so um, there's, uh, I believe the current total world population is over 450 individuals. Um, about half of that total are birds that are a part of the captive breeding program. Um, and so you have captive breeding programs at the L.A. Zoo, San Diego Zoo, the Oregon Zoo, and here in Boise at the World Center for Birds of Prey. Um, and then the other half of that 450, roughly half, are out in the wild, out in one of the um, the, the the release areas. Um, so these are all areas. So California condors were extinct from the wild from 1987 to 1992. Um, so all the condors that are out there have been reintroduced. Um, and there's, uh, let's see, five release sites. Um, so there's three in California, two in central California, one at Big Sur and one at Pinnacles, uh, national park. And then one in Southern California, um, at Hopper mountain, just outside of Ventana. And then you have a release population, uh, in Northern Baja, California. Um, and then there's a release population in Northern Arizona, um, and that's the population that that I have direct experience working with. And and that population is um, there's only one release site, um, but there's close to 80 individuals. Um, so it's, you know, uh, almost the size of the California wild flock, because in California, all three of those release sites, it, it essentially forms one population because the Southern California ones intermingle with the Central California. Um and in Arizona, it's just one release site. So all the birds are released from this one spot, but every year their range expands. And so every year the birds like venture further north into Utah and they venture 
a little bit further west into Nevada. Um, and so that range is continuously um, expanding as they find, you know, new places to forage, new potential nesting habitat, um, all, all that stuff. How is it that they build their communities? Absolutely. Yeah. So condors, um, they, they do just about everything except their breeding in social groups. So, so they forage in social groups. Um, they have large communal roosts. Um, but when a male and female come together and establish a pair bond, um, that pair will go off on their own, separate from the rest of the flock, and they will seek out a, 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 a cave or a cavity. Um, and in, in Arizona and Utah, this is always like a cave on like a, a, you know, a sheer cliff face, like in the Grand Canyon or you know, up in Zion. Um, in California, um, about half of the uh, nesting attempts are actually made in cavities in redwood trees. So they're looking for a cavity of some type. Um, and, you know, during like all of that breeding behavior happens like sort of independently from the social group and they will defend that nesting territory from other condors. Right. So like even within their social group. Exactly. Yeah. 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 However, you know, one, one of those individuals, um, from that breeding pair will leave the nesting site and they will go up to one of the spots, you know, they will fly to one of the spots where there is communal foraging going on and they will feed with all with with the full social group. Right. And then, you know, and they'll gorge themselves and then they'll return back to that nest cave by themselves, you know, to feed their chick um, or to, you know, give some food to their mate who's who's uh, incubating an egg, et cetera. Um, so that's kind of how the, the, the dynamic, you know, works out. And it's, um, it's, it's a little bit different. I mean, it's sort of like, so, you know, um, most old world vultures, you know, they have these, they have breeding colonies. Um, so it's like, they do everything in these big social groups, right? They forage in social groups. Um, and they also breed in social groups and they'll like pick one, you know, uh, one sort of cliff wall and, you know, they'll be like, 30 or 40 or 60 or a hundred pairs that'll all breed, you know, within, uh, very close proximity to one another. Um, condors, they still do all the foraging in the social groups and they establish these, you know, these, uh, really complex, like social relationships with all the other condors, uh, in the population. Um, but then when they go off to establish a breeding territory, it's just the pair and they protect that area and they will fight other birds that come too close. And for how long? I mean, is it, you know, once their chick is a certain age then, and then they're back in the group? Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, but it takes quite a while um, to raise that chick, right? So, I mean, I said that, you know, eggs are typically laid right around this time of year, um, you know, uh, February into March and maybe into April. Um, it's roughly two months of incubation. Um, before a condor egg will hatch. And then once the egg hatches, um, it's six months, roughly six months before that condor um, is ready to take its first flight, to fledge from its nest cave. Um, and then after that six month period, once it takes that first flight and it fledges from the nest cave, it relies at least partially dependent on its parents for food for up to a year. And so that's why it's 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 very unusual 
it 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 it's it happens occasionally, but it's very unusual for a uh, a condor pair to come back the next year and to raise another chick in, in the following year after raising. So do they take one. a year off? So they usually take a year off, and you know, and often what you see is um, you see a pair like attempt to kick the chick from the previous year out. You know what I mean? Like, like they, they try to coax it, like, go join the rest of the flock. Like, come on, like mom and dad want to get it on here. Like, yeah, exactly. Go fend for yourself. And the chick's like, no, I'm not ready. I can't find food on my own yet. Or these other condors are being mean to me, you know? Um, and you see this happen. And, um, and you know, most of the time the, that chick wins and the parents are like, all right, we'll wait another year to raise another one. Um, but uh, yeah, it's this it, this interesting sort of interaction, and 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 it probably depends on the timing, like how early they lay that egg, you know what I mean, um, and what developmental stage that that chick is at when the next year's uh, you know breeding season comes around. And how big big are their uh, clutches? Oh, just one. Just one. Yeah. Interesting. One egg at a time. Yep. And so that was one of the um, so in the wild. I mean, this is this is you know part one of the sort of characteristics of condors that that contributed to its decline right i mean very low reproductive rates very long-lived species um they only raise one chick every two years in the wild um but of course you know if these condors live to 60 to 70 years and they're raising a chick every two years from age eight through age 50 or 60 or whatever like, that's a lot of little baby condors running around um but yes, it's slow to, you know, when, you know, when the numbers drop down to like 22 individuals, which was the low point for the population, like, oh man, it's going to take a long time to like boost this population back up to a healthy level. But what was discovered in, um, what was discovered was that in captivity, um, condors will, they will lay a second egg. So if an egg is removed um, from the nest, they will lay a second egg, right? And so they view that as like a nest failure, right? And so like the wild, that would happen as well. Like a raven might get into, you know, um, ravens are the worst sort of nest predators for condors and ravens are always messing around with the condors of the thing, trying to get in there to break the egg open. Um, so in the wild, that, you know, could totally happen. And then they would, you know, recycle and lay a second egg and have a second attempt. Um, in captivity, what is done is that the first egg that is laid is pulled and then they lay a second egg. And then you can essentially, you can produce two chicks per pair per year. And so are they rearing both? Um, it depends. Right. And so like, you know, we, in the early years of the captive breeding program, like, yes, they were trying to boost the numbers as fast as possible. And for every single pair, they were pulling that first egg and letting them recycle and lay a second egg. Um, and then what, but of course that creates a situation where it's like, you want the parent right. to raise that chick. Right. Um, because you know, the parents are going to teach it, you know, the, the sort of behavioral things that, that, that condors need. Right. I mean, right. And, and to socialize. Right. Um, but, if a single pair has two chicks, right? If they have two eggs and the first egg is removed and they have a second egg, one pair is not going to raise two chicks because right. that would never happen in the wild, right? Um, and so this is where oh, okay. the puppet yeah, yeah, yeah. comes into play. A lot of people, a lot of people are aware of the puppet rearing. It was another one of these questions that I got asked all the time when I was working as a condor biologist. Um, and the puppet rearing was sort of done out of necessity. Um, early on in the program, 
um, because there weren't enough parents captive <laughs> pairs of right. right parents to like raise every single chick. And there was also a lot of concern about, and, and I mean, there still is concern. It's just not as acute anymore because the numbers are much higher. But early on, there was a lot of concern of like, well, what if something happens and the right, parents right, kill the chick? Right. That was exactly where my head you was know? going. Because this is an un this is an unnatural right. situation. The parents are fenced in in this restricted area. So even though like it would be hard to imagine the parents killing a chick in the wild, these are stressful like, conditions. It could. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so I mean, and and that was one aspect of my job when I worked in the captive breeding program was you know there were monitors set up like we had security cameras set up in every pen. Um, and I would sit in our control station and I would watch, you know, we had 16 breeding pairs and, you know, we had a camera with like an overview of the whole pen. And then we had a camera inside the little artificial nest box. So we were watching, you know, like we were watching that egg, watching the incubation process. And then once, you know, the egg hatched and there was a little chick in there, we were watching the behavior and we were watching any behavior that indicated like that the parents might do something you know, um, aggressive sure. towards, towards the chick. Um, and then of course there's other layers of complexity, right? I mean, the incubation of those eggs in, in captivity, um, is actually done artificially in an incubator. Mm. So the procedure is actually such that like, uh, a condor pair in this captive setting, they, you know, they do their whole breeding display thing. Um, they do a successful copulation, they lay an egg, and very soon after they lay that egg, um, we sneak in and remove that egg and we replace it with a dummy egg, right? Unless we want them to recycle, right? But the thing is, is like, we want all, you know, at this current moment, because the numbers are already, there's, you know, you know, uh, uh, almost 200 condors in, in these captive breeding programs. Like it's no longer necessary to have every single pair um, produce two chicks per year. So often what we're doing is we're removing that real egg, replacing it with a dummy egg so that from the perspective of the, the parent condors, their egg is still there, right? right. Uh, but the real egg is then incubated artificially in like an incubator designed for chicken eggs, you know, um, because it's consistent, right? And we know that like some behavior of the parents isn't going to like, you know, mess up the incubation process for that egg. Um, and then... And the health of the embryo within that egg is monitored on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And so handling the eggs, which, you know, is essentially just a bright light you hold the egg up to so that you can see the developing embryo inside it. And so we're um, doing, you know, regular monitoring of the health of the embryo inside the egg. Um, and uh, then, you know, when that chick is very, very close to being ready to hatch, um, you know, you start, you actually start to see the, the, the spot where it's egg tooth is, is actually cracking the outside of the shell, right? Then what we do is we, um, we take that real egg and we rush and we remove the dummy egg and replace it with the real one. Right. And then hopefully the parents come in and they see like, oh, it's getting ready to hatch. And then they come in and they assist it and they, they assist with the hatch. Um, and not all the time. I mean, sometimes the chicken just just bust out on their own, but often the parents will assist and then they pay attention and, you know, but that transition is very, very critical, right? Because you have to make sure that like, you, A, you don't get caught, right? like, you know what I mean? Um, because then the condors are like, wait, something's wrong. And then, and you know, that is something that could lead to them killing the chick. Like they see this wrong, you know? Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of like the 
procedure that is done to like maximize to create the situation where like the highest likelihood chance of, of success of that chick. Uh, you know, I'm trying to sort of bring this back to uh, to humanity, right? Um, and um, you know, it's Valentine's Day, and you know, we're thinking about like all these kind of connections. I mean, we're putting it in the context of like you know breeding behavior, which is kind of a weird way to like you know an unusual way for us to think about like um, you know that type of behavior in our own species. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I thought, um, like Catherine, you and I have been discussing this, this concept of, um, community, um, amongst the folks who listen to this show. And, um, I mean, that's really going to be sort of our next big push, like our sort of short term goal, um, that we want to accomplish, um, with the podcast moving forward is to, you know, create a community where folks who listen to this show, can um, can interact, can ask questions of us or of other listeners, um, can uh, present show requests. Um, uh, I mean, all of these things. Uh, I mean, we're we're also talking about like um, researching ways that we can poll our audience to figure out like what what types of interviews and what types of episodes are um, you know. Are, are, do, you Peaking know, curiosity, yeah, really. exactly. Like which ones are most mm -hmm. interesting. And, and, and I mean, I know because I listen to a lot of podcasts too. I mean, you go and it's like a podcast you follow, follow, you go and look in the feed and like, you know, you're like, Oh, which one? Oh, I haven't listened to this podcast in a while. Like, Oh, this interview, you know, yeah. this, this is the one I'm going to listen to. Right. And that's kind of what we're looking for of like, you know, what is, um, what really perks your interest? Um, and how can we sort of, you know, we we're trying to find ways to like directly more directly interact with, um, with all of you, the folks who who are listening, um, yeah. yeah, and a way to 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 essentially build out, you know, make stories that that are are as interesting to us as they are to other people, right? So, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that that I find fascinating, but I watch other people when I tell them their their eyes sort of glaze over. So <laughs> that's the kind of stuff I don't necessarily want to bring to. <laughs> people but i but i i you know i always think it's interesting to say you know to branch out and hear what other people are sort of hungry for or interested in or want to learn more about it's helpful yeah absolutely and so i mean we sort of landed on like the best way to do this i think um at this moment in time is our facebook group um which some of our listeners are already members of it's called eoc podcast um and we'll provide a link to the to, to that group in the show notes page. Um, it's a closed group, so you do have to ask permission to join. Um, but uh, yeah, that seems to be—I uh, don't know—that that seems to be like the the solution that we've. It's landed a good starting on. point. Yes, it's a good starting point. It's a good way, like, for folks to sort of have the ability to to share their their thoughts and opinions about the show, um, share suggestions, um, reach out to reach out to us directly, but also you know, have the ability to reach out to other folks that listen to the show. Um, and so, yeah, we're really, we're trying to encourage folks to, um, you know, send, send us that request, join that Facebook group, EOC podcast. Um, you guys got to tell us, um, what, yeah, what, what you're looking for, you know, and yeah. And 
Find out more about joining the EOC community and where to pick up a copy of Dr. Tatiana's Sex Advice to All Creation, written by evolutionary biologist and award-winning journalist Olivia Judson, on the show notes page at wildlandsinc.org, EOC 140.